These people were set up on the street and they were giving away syringes, clean syringes for free. And they were risking jail. And every time I talk about that, it moves me. Someone went out, risked their freedom and touched me. And I said, look, we know what you're doing. We're not here to judge you. If you want to stop, we'll talk to you about that. But, you know, we know you need this right now. And here's the syringe. And to me, it was this transformational moment in my life. That was Dimitri Mugianis, and I'm Henry Winslow. You're listening to Dharma Talk. Dharma Talkers, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the show where I go deep with yoga teachers and yoga practitioners I admire. This week, my guest is a little bit non-traditional, not just in the context of this show, seeing as he's not a yoga teacher at all, but also in his methods of spreading love and acceptance, which in my opinion is in fact very yogic. This week, I talk with Dimitri Mugianis, a recovering opiate addict, spiritual healer, though he hates being called that, and harm reduction activist. But before we go into the conversation, first, please subscribe to Dharma Talk if you haven't done so already. It takes just a minute of your time, and that way you know you're going to get each episode delivered straight to your phone every Thursday. And if you love the show, please leave a rating and review. You can also share the episode with a friend who you think could benefit from it. And if you have the financial means to do so, please consider making a donation to help keep Dharma Talk up and running. You can always make a donation on my website. Just go to henrywins.com donate and you'll have the options there. As usual, I have a few announcements to share with you. In November, I'm moving out of New York. So for the New York yogis in the audience or anyone passing through in October, I'd love to come see you for the last hurrah. On October 12th and 13th, I'm giving a Rocket Yoga Weekend, Rocket 1, 2, and 3 at Pure Yoga West. On October 26th and 27th, I'm doing a workshop on Saturday and Sunday at Living Yoga in Queens, backbending and handstanding. And then November 3rd, I'm doing a handstand training workshop at my home school of Lighthouse Yoga School. After that, maybe we can sync up travel schedules. But for those workshops in New York, head over to henrywins.com events and sign up there. Yogis, if you are looking for the perfect way to wrap up 2019 and lay a golden foundation for a beautiful 2020 to come, then please join me and my wife, Veronica Lombo, for our seven-day retreat to Bali. We're calling it Divine Connection because that's our vision for this retreat, that you'll be able to take the time to step away from your typical environment, step away from your social conditioning and your responsibilities and get honed into the divine light within you. And how do we hope to achieve that? Well, every morning is going to begin with noble silence. This is prime time for self-reflection, self-inquiry and inner work. Also, we will have a group meditation every day and two yoga classes, one more rigorous vinyasa class and one more restorative hatha class. We're going to take care of all the food for you. You'll be provided three vegan plant-based and refined sugar-free meals a day. 
And we've also got some exciting adventures and excursions lined up, all included. Basically, we have an amazing experience lined up for you, something totally transformative and empowering. You just have to get yourself to Bali and then we'll take you through the rest. If this sounds appealing, please head over to henrywins.com slash Bali and you can find all the details there. Now, allow me to introduce my guest from this week, Dimitri Mugianis at Dimitri Mugianis on Instagram. That's D-I-M-I-T-R-I-M-U-G-I-A-N-I-S is a drug policy activist, buiti, spiritual healer, poet, and musician. At the depths of his own heroin and cocaine addiction, Dimitri discovered ibogaine, a plant sacrament from Central Africa that allowed him to break his habit without withdrawal symptoms. Now he provides a safe and dogma-free container for others in which to experience psychedelic medicine, emphasizing self-love and acceptance. Dimitri is currently Nganga in residence at the New York Harm Reduction Educators, Nairi, a service-based community working with addicted, homeless, formerly incarcerated, and HIV-positive people in East Harlem and the Bronx. Dimitri and I have had the pleasure of getting to know one another over the past couple months since I started volunteering at the Nairi, but this conversation really let us go deep, and I'm so happy that I get to share it with you. Some of the topics that we covered over the course of this conversation were his long-term relationship with heroin and cocaine, and the introduction of Ibogaine, the plant teacher or sacrament that gave him a new lease on life and revealed to him his own future through visions, which would of course include becoming initiated into the Buiti faith and bringing the medicine to the U.S. on a mission to de detox others suffering just as he had. We also talk about harm reduction, which is a specific term, relating to meeting people where they're at without judgment or without attempting to change their habits and where even progressive policy fails to address the heart. Finally, we talk about psychedelic disintegration and where we should actively choose to dismantle a society that's broken rather than try to integrate or fit in. If this conversation resonates with you and you'd like to learn more about what Dimitri is up to and how you can help out with Nairi or any of the other things that he's got going on, head over to dharmatalk.show and type Dimitri in the search bar, D-I-M-I-T-R-I, -I, and you'll find all the notes and links for this episode, including timestamps for specific points in the conversation so you can follow along. And by the way, did you know that I've got a running list of every book ever recommended on Dharma Talk? So if you are looking for your next read, head over to henrywins.com slash books and pick one out. Now, without further ado, please enjoy this deep and inspiring interview with Dimitri Mugianis. Dimitri, welcome to the show. How's it going? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I'm happy to be talking with you over the Me airwaves. Too. Me too. Thank you for the invitation and the opportunity. Of course. Um, and I, I owe my gratitude to Rose Aaron Vaughn, who was a previous guest of the show and a close friend of mine for making the introduction. We've had the pleasure of meeting in person a few times, but I think that we can go pretty deep with this conversation today. Right on. Yeah. I'm always, always grateful for Rose in my life. Yeah. 
absolutely. Yeah, and for this introduction, yeah. Well, the first question that I ask all of my guests uh, is the same. So I'm going to ask you that question first. What does the word Dharma mean to you? And what is your Dharma as you understand it today? So, <laughs> um, I think I know what Dharma means, but I'm not sure. So I'll just say this. I, dharma, from my understanding, is um, the Buddhist teachings. Um, so what I understand about that in term, it, it is probably pretty little in terms of um, uh, the history and um, what is actually in the Dharma, other than sort of a cursory, you know, um, outsider's sort of outside of a yogic or Buddhist practice. But what I understand Dharma to be is the truth. Dharma is a, a, a path, a guiding, a light. Um, and maybe we could interpret the Dharma to mean higher self. So my Dharma is to do less well, to do no harm, but really to do less harm. And actually my spiritual practice is to be a little bit less of an asshole every day. And that's that a is, good practice. <laughs> it's a hard one because <laughs> sometimes you get, you meet somebody else and then, you know, it's easy by myself in my apartment. The second I walk outside, that's when I have to put it into practice, but yeah, that's it. And, um, yeah, that's, that's pretty much all I know. What I, can I ask you that question? Well, it's, I'm glad that you answered the way that you did because, um, you know, most of the guests that I have on this show come from more of a, of a yoga and, um, Vedic philosophy background, I suppose, but Dharma has kind of a different meaning depending on which teachings you're following. And a lot of people answer more along the lines of how Dharma is defined in the Bhagavad Gita, which has to do with your duty or your path. But, mm. um, but the Buddhist teachings, you're right, are also called the Dharma and, it's interesting how when you start to explain yourself and go deeper into, you know, un unpacking that word, they kind of end up in the same place, which is truth. Yeah. I do think mm -hmm. it's truth. Mm -hmm. And, Blessings. and, and our higher self is the truth after all. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I didn't realize that Dharma was also used in, 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 in Hindu uh, tradition. So that's, that's, it makes sense though. Right. Because I, yeah, that's yeah. where the, the Buddha came from. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Right. Well, cool. there are so many things that I want to talk about with you today, um, but I figured a nice jumping off point would be the phrase, I'm dangerous with love. Hmm. What does that mean? Where, what is the significance of that phrase to you? And maybe take us through a story. Okay, absolutely. Well, once upon a time. <laughs> uh, once upon a time, I was a, um, I was a heroin addict. I was uh, at a 20-year relationship with heroin. And I call it a relationship because that's what it was. I mean, there was good and bad. There was ups and downs. And I have to say that when I hear someone who's been in a 20-year relationship speaking badly about their ex-partner, it doesn't reflect well on them. So I don't want to speak badly about heroin or cocaine. Um, they were my first plant teachers, for those of you who are familiar with the concept of plant teacher. Um, it's just that, you know, it's more used in, in, in the sort of psychedelic plant medicine world but, world. but I learned a lot in that relationship. It also took a lot, I think. I know it took a lot. It gives a lot, heroin and cocaine. <laughs> um, 
it, it was a numbing of pain. It was a, a way to get out of the pain of my childhood and youth. Um, but I started out as a young person interested in art and culture and revolution and different ways of experiencing the world and sort of as a, as a way to numb the pain, anesthetize myself, but also as a way to sort of, uh, in a creative way, at least initially to say, fuck you to the existing oppression of our, you know, modern world. Um, I found myself the ultimate consumer. Uh, my whole life was revolved around uh, getting and receiving, you know, trying to get the dope, heroin in this case, and cocaine. And I ended up, my, my, my world went very small, um, but it took a long time. So it was a 20-year process. I was using drugs since a young person. Then I got involved with heroin and injecting heroin and cocaine. And that was 20 years. And, you know, my world became very small. Um, I ended up, after the death of my, um, my, my, uh, my common-law wife, who was pregnant with my baby, um, sort of in a real dark place. I moved back in with my parents in Detroit, living in the basement after having sort of an expansive life as an artist and an activist in New York City, a musician. and um, Ended up in a really small place where I was just shooting dope cocaine and heroin the coke the dope would the heroin would give me comfort and the cocaine would make me psychotic and i couldn't get out of that cycle um and and so last ditch sort of attempt not really to live but i just i'm greek american i just wanted to go to greece i wanted to go to the place of my ancestors and i didn't really realize the significance of the ancestors at that time i just wanted to go there i had a hunger for it but i couldn't go because of my addiction I decided to try something that I learned about through the work of Dana Beal and Howard Lutzoff, two pioneers in, in plant medicine. Um, uh, I heard about in the early 90s something called Ibogaine, Iboga, which is a, um, a plant from Central Africa, from Gabon, Equatorial Central Africa. And this plant, the root bark of it, is ingested as an initiatory tool, much like I'm sure people are at this point are pretty much familiar with ayahuasca or psilocybin uh, mushrooms or peyote. It's used as a, a um, initiatory sacrament. Um, and much like those, those drugs or plants, however you want to call it, there was a tradition of healing, a cultural tradition and a healing tradition that grew up around the ingestion of the sacrament. And with that, that's the thing that grew up there was also an understanding of the pharmaco uh, pharmacopoeia, in this case of the forest, but in, in, with peyote, the desert, or depending on where these medicines are from. So this thing was called Bwiti, this, this religion or spirituality, but I wouldn't know about that for years. Anyways, I decided as a latch, this, well, let me, let me back up for a second. One of its um, uh, properties is... Uh, that it interrupts physical dependence on opioids and opiates without withdrawal. Uh, and, and did you know this going into it? Was that what oh, drew absolutely. you toward it? Absolutely. Okay. There's, there's no heroin addict that wants to trip. 
Okay. As as my friend, um, uh, uh, the, uh, the late great uh, Rene Ricard, the poet and painter, said when he heard about Ibogaine, uh, and he was a, 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 an opiate addict, uh, he said, I, I want to keep the doors of my perception tightly closed. Mm. So the idea wasn't for expansiveness, it was just to be in this cocoon. So the reason I went to this, because I wanted to do this process, and then I wanted to go to Greece and then just come back and continue to die because that was the first thought in the morning and my last thought at night was that I wanted to die while I was in, in, in the grips of cocaine and heroin. Um, but the Bwiti or God or Dharma had a different plan. Um, I should say that this is one of the most high threshold um, plant medicines, meaning that it takes a long time instead of you know three to five hours like maybe ayahuasca it's more like the trip is more like 12 to 18 hours and you might be on your ass for three to four days if longer especially when it's a detox mm-hmm. um and it's also really difficult there's also could be cardio complications it's a it's a high threshold medicine so it was with it's just no joke you have to get an ekg before you take it so i went to holland i ended up going to holland to do this with the intention of just doing it, going to Greece, coming back and continue to die. I just wanted to touch the ground in Greece. But what happened was in the course of those three days that I was under the medicine, because as an addict, you have to continually take more and more of it to sort of push the withdrawal away. Um, Well, first of all, I didn't experience withdrawal. It was incredibly uncomfortable. It was incredibly difficult journey. Um, But I didn't, crave heroin and in the process of that so first of all let me say this it's not the visions that are doing that because if you give someone for example lsd or or psilocybin or any of the psychedelics that you can think of or plant medicines who is in withdrawal is a, is a heroin user heroin addict um they're just going to trip and be very angry at you because they'll be in withdrawal the whole time in the, initial, in the initial sort of test dose, a sort of sub-psychedelic dose that is given to someone coming in for a detox, the withdrawals go away. Now, the problem is you have to, well, I don't know if it's a problem. It could be a problem for some people, but you have to give a, a massive dose to sort of flood people to you know, pass them over you know, uh, through their addiction over a, a day and a half period, let's say. But that worked. I was, the experience itself with the boga is incredibly difficult. It kicks your ass. You vomit, you, you sweat, you, the, the visions are powerful, but I never was craving heroin. And I had detoxed maybe 30, 40 times. So I, I went through that process and then spent 10 days recuperating in, in actually I went just, I went to Holland just outside of uh, Amsterdam. So I went to Amsterdam to get clean, which is kind of, you know, amazing in itself, especially <laughs> yeah. in those, it was like Mecca, like for dope, dope users, you know, for, for a fucking dope fiend like myself. I was like Amsterdam. Of course, my brother came with me because, you know, I also had like $2,000 in cash. It was probably not a good idea to send me alone to Amsterdam. But, um, because <laughs> you know, I might have made it. But I had no desire to use. Um, and let me say this. This is a really, I'm in the minority in that case because most people go back to using after Ebola. But I have never had a strong desire to use. I have never used heroin or cocaine since that day 17 years ago. And the phrase, in answer to your question, <laughs> what does I'm dangerous with love mean? Um, I'm, I'm a, 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 a songwriter, a poet, a writer. 
Um, and I hadn't written anything in many years, the last maybe four or five years, I was completely outside of the creative world. I was just parking cars as a valet and hustling in various different ways to make my habit. But um, what, what did happen was I was asked after 10 days of, of you know, sort of recuperating this beautiful little family's home uh, on the, uh, actually the place called Brooklyn, which is Brooklyn. Uh, outside of Amsterdam, you know, with the windmill in the background. It was like, you know, after coming from the streets of Detroit and Lower East Side of Manhattan back in, back in the day, I was in this idyllic space. I was asked to write something in the guest book. And I wrote a poem, um, which the refrain was, at the end of it, I was just talking about being born again in many different ways. I just wrote, I'm dangerous with love. And that went on to become the name of a, of a documentary that Michelle Negroponte made about myself and my work. And I think what I was foreshadowing is, because I already had this, this sort of evangelical zeal to go and, you know, let other people in my situation who were struggling, um, you know, who maybe didn't have, you know, the resources. And by the way, at that point, $2,000 was a lot of money for my family. Uh, people were struggling. Um, they had to mortgage their home, actually. But for folks that didn't have that or couldn't leave the country, because, by the way, it's a Schedule One felony in the same category as heroin, um, a Boga IBA in the United States. So my idea almost immediately was to come and bring it to the United States and, uh, and just do it. And so um, that's what it was, this sort of dangerous radical love. I think I was foreseeing my future. And when you say do it, you mean start serving it to other heroin yeah. addicts? Yeah, yeah, detoxing folks, which was quite quite a thing, mm -hmm. you know. And, and I know from I've seen the documentary "I'm Dangerous with Love," so I know that that is in fact what happened. So, um, how, how how did you proceed from there? And you knew that it was a Schedule One drug. You knew that there were potential legal ramifications. How did you tackle this challenge? And um, were you were you, did you struggle at any point with, um, with any, any part of that process? Well, you know, I was born, born into a, um, a tradition of, um, a leftist tradition. Um, my, my family, um, you know, not just my parents, but my grandparents and great uncles were all, I'm not talking about liberals, I mean leftist, uh, some were communist, socialist, anarchist. I have a, great uncle who died fighting in the Spanish Civil War. So on my dad's side, that was uh, we're from a, an island that's pretty well, that's actually where I went afterwards. Uh, after uh, uh, Holland, I went to the island of Icaria. Some of you might know it as one of the blue zones where the people live to 120. But they don't usually say in, in, uh, in a lot of the uh, literature on the blue zones, uh, there's another color associated with that island, which is red. So it's, also, it's known as the Red Island in Greece because of this sort of uh, left um, view. So I came up in that um, and, you know, I was very politicized very early on. Uh, so um, when I had gone through the process, I was just, I just knew what I was going to do. Um, I didn't struggle with it. I had a vision. I had, man, I'm going to start talking about crazy shit now, but I had visions for years of, of myself in handcuffs. Um, and I had been in handcuffs many times, but it wasn't the vision that I was seeing. So in the aboga, I knew everything was pretty much laid out for me. Um, and I know this sounds crazy, but I knew what I was going to do. I knew very specific things 
uh, I knew I was going to be on, for example, I was going to be a guest uh, or, or featured on This American Life. That happened within three years. I had, I didn't, there's no effort I could have done to do that, but that just sort of happened. I knew that there would be a movie. I knew that I would eventually be arrested. I knew that I would eventually go to Africa and I knew to Gabon and I knew who would initiate me because into the Buiti because I saw him, my vision. Um, all of this sounds pretty crazy, but you know, if I were to say anything else, I'd be lying. So I'm not going to lie to you. Um, so yeah, I didn't struggle with it much. I mean, it caused, you know, I, what, what I did was I went to Greece and I spent three months in the village and the ancestral bit because, uh, came in, uh, was, it was sort of a flood, um, the ancestral piece. Uh, and I mean, the piece, like I realized who I was and where I was from, um, and which is a very big part of Buiti, which is the spirituality in central, in, in central Africa, in Gabon, that grows up around Ibogaine. Um, but it's also been described, Iboga has been described as, a, um, as an epigenetic healer. Um, and the idea in Buiti and in many um, cultures, particularly African cultures, is that you heal yourself and you heal your ancestors. So I was healing those old lefties that had struggled in the Greek Civil War, that had been imprisoned and abused and had come as immigrants and had experienced immigration, you know, in this country for Southern Europeans in the 100, 100 years ago or 90 or 70 years ago. And it wasn't a nice, you know, they were poor people. Uh, and those patterns that had continued, I saw them and healed them. And the whole time I was in the village, I was in my grandmother's village where my grandmother was, was born and she was long dead at that point. But I was burning with this desire to come to the States. I should say there was a pivotal moment uh, in that village. My Greek is not that good, but I was walking to the, to the town, the little village, and there weren't a lot of folks there. It was mostly old people because other people were out making a living in the States or Athens or Germany or Australia. And they come back in the summer, you know. And so there's a strange young man walking through the village. And he was just under 40 at that point. And this old lady came up to me. And she had my grandmother's walker. I used to call my mother, grandmother. She had to call her walk the John Wayne walk. She would kind of like move shift side to side. And the same sort of unsmiling stare. And she's sizing me up. And she asked me a question, which at first I thought was, who are you? But I misinterpreted What she was asking me is, whose was I? Who did I belong to? Mm. And once I understood that, and I told her the name of my family, my great grandfather, my grandmother, and she just she sized me up, placed me within that, within that, um, in that in her world, in, in her lineage. And before she left, she's told me uh, that my grandmother had baptized her. Um, and so I'm saying that because there was this great healing of um, uh, healing that occurred not only with the medicine, but in in that village but also a building that I was going to come back and, and do this work as an act of radical service. And that's what I did. I mean, it took me a while to get back. And, and I, I, I got to say, don't try this at home. Boga is serious medicine. Detox is some of the serious. At first, I did it without medical you know, assistance, uh, which for this particular drug, which is very high threshold, is, is dangerous. Uh, I was blessed that no one ended up dying, but that's the work I did. And I did it for many years, and I did it um, not underground. I was very vocal about it. I was on This American Life. I was talking at conferences. I would announce that I was going to do it. Um, newspaper articles about it and so forth. 
Mm-hmm. And a movie made about it. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Well, uh, earlier you said that after your first, after your personal experience using Ibogaine, that you came away with this evangelical zeal to to share it with others. You know, that, that was interesting for me to hear that because going into it, it was something that was not meant to be so profound. It was kind of a stop on the way to Greece and not meant to change the course of your life at all. Was what was the turning point in your mindset? There was was it this revelation that you were doing ancestral karma healing for for your family, or was it something that you saw in your visions? Like, what was it that made you change your mind you about know, the, the significance? The, the, the thing about it, you know, not only was I going to Greece, I was going to die. <laughs> that was my plan was to die. I was done with this this incarnation. What yeah. I cannot pinpoint where it was, but. The, the transformation was so, I, I don't know for anyone who hasn't had a serious physical dependency on something, the transformation was so suddenly, so immediate, and, and without, um, there wasn't a point in the vision that said, no more heroin for you. Actually, the visions weren't about that at all. There was visions about sexual abuse as a kid. There was visions about my relationship with my father. There was visions about my, the, the death of, of of, of my of my common law wife and the loss of my child there was there was messages about the way I had treated people the things that I had done there was this sort of an accounting of all of that and at the end of it there was when I sort of crawled out of that cocoon of really I was vomiting and you know things were coming out of every orifice and basically uh, when I came out of that and sort of cleansed myself, there was just no question what I was going to do. It was, it was, there, was, there was no question that I was never going to use again, or at least so far I have. It's been 17 years. It just wasn't a question. My father, who is a, a, a sort of a fundamentalist atheist, he saw this. He said, you know, if this thing works for this, this guy, he's going to be a spokesman. Um, you know, I think he kind of saw my active, you know, my activist work, my work as a, as a lead singer and, and the way I could work with people, he saw something, but that was my atheist father saw the future. I didn't. And there was no moment. It was just, this is what I'm doing. And the visions of my, let's say of, of my teacher in Gabon, that came to me. That was a vision. There was a man standing in the forest wearing it with his beard. And that was Papa Andre, who I met maybe five years, four or five years later, but there was nothing in the vision that said, we will do this. It was just a knowing. Mm-hmm. Um, right. This, yeah. Now, I mean, now we're talking about Dharma. This is, this is your path, your purpose, and it's laid out for you, which takes away a lot of the, um, the fear and confusion to know, to know at a deep level like that. Right. And, and actually what I thought it, of course, I guess your Dharma changes, right? Or your Dharma is revealed if it doesn't change because it is morphed into other things, you know, um, because I thought it was to work with this plant. But it morphed as time went on. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, I, was, I, I think about this a lot. Clearly, it's it's sort of my um, it's sort of my work in in the world. I'm sorry, my friend's got a cough. I don't know if that's coming through. In the it's background. okay, don't worry. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's okay. But you can cough. It's okay. Um, we live in a world where people can cough. Uh, anyways, um, <laughs> um, but. Uh, it's it's 
So is it the work with drug users? And what I've come to, I did, I did a talk at Three Jewels in New York with Hector. I don't know if you know Hector. I do know uh, Hector. Hector. He, he's yeah. also been on the podcast, Hector Marcel. Yeah. Hector Marcel, what a beautiful human being. Um, and we did talk on drugs and spirituality. And I'm also writing my memoirs right now. And so I'm, I'm really thinking about, about all of this. And is it about drugs? So what I've been talking about for years is um, sort of the biblical uh, metaphor, the story of, the, of Christ healing the leper, right? So Christ, who, who, the leper is the outcast, the unhealable the untouchable, the unlovable. Not only is he unhealable, untouchable, unlovable, he's dangerous to everybody else because they might get what he has, right? So no one talks to him, no one heals him. And so Christ touched him and, and healed him. Now, in a reductionist world, we might want to find the component, that, uh, that, that Christ molecule, that we can sort of like synthesize and, 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 and distribute so there'll be no more leprosy, right? That's a public health, public health here, right? So there's a public health perspective on that. This also familiar. It was great for the family, and it was great for the leper, right? But the bigger message there is about radical love and acceptance. He touched the untouchable, the the, represent, the, the embodiment of God on earth, of divine on earth, touched and loved the un, the untouchable and the unlovable, and that's the bigger story, right? So. Okay, so what does that mean? It's, okay, there's, a, there's, there's, there's the, the personal, there's the sort of the metaphoric, you know, we, we must love the unlovable, must find the love in ourselves. And then there is actually what that produces in the world. Hmm. So if we were to love the leper, how, how does that change our heart? If we were to reach out and take a risk, and touch of the leper. How does that change us? So, in the in the modern day, it, where we are right now is with the body. With the you know, that's a politicized body. That leper is a politicized body in many ways, like the politicized body of the addict. So, when we stretch ourselves, we change. And if we look to change, if we look to that change, where is that change leading us? That change is leading us not only the personal transformation and familial transformation and community transformation, that will lead to global and cosmic transformation. Because what we have to do and how we have to move through the world is so different, so radically different in order for us to do that. I, I, I'm thinking about uh, Theopison, I can't think of his last name, I don't know if you're familiar with, I believe he's Navajo, he's had a show on WBAI for years. I can't think of his last name, but he's an I'm Indian not. activist. I had dinner with him. I don't know him well. I had dinner with him and several other people years ago. And he said there was, I think it's Hopi, a prophecy that said, let's just say Native American because I don't want to get the wrong nation, a Native American prophecy that said that in order for us, the Europeans, the ones who are sort of pulling the levers, in order for them to be okay for us, then we would have to make his people happy. It sounded like a really great thing, right? Okay, that's cool. I just finished the meal. And that just stuck, stuck with me for several days. What it really means is in order for, for end-stage capitalism, for the power structure to make Native Americans happy, meaning give land, water, resources, give back, nurture, share, listen, all that stuff that would have to take place within, within the, the individuals and then the, 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 the structure would cause the revolution 
that would change that would take us away from the brink of destruction. And so I'm re- I, I, I fought, I did this radical service for years. I, I detoxed heroin addicts in hotel rooms and motel rooms. I, it will get into all that. And it was important, I think, for the individuals. But I was also doing it to make Iboga more acceptable in the United States, which I realize now is the smallest part of it. Right. It's, it's similar to the, the act of Christ touching the leper. It's not about what the actual mechanism of healing was, but it's more about the, the implication for what that means in the heart of the healer and the healed. And I, yes. I think that's a, that's a message that's, um, that's very important from what you're saying, that when we heal, it's not just a one-sided exchange. It's not. And it always happens when we talk, someone asked about helping. Um, the problem with helping or even healing, I, you know, I've been thinking about this lately too. I'm, I'm not even comfortable, I don't think, and this is like this week. <laughs> I've been thinking about, I don't know, that, that this, but I, I don't want to digress, but I'd like to get back to healing. But this idea of it being a, 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 a one direction process is mm-hmm. so damaging. Um, there's so much to learn from the leper. There's so much to learn from somebody's process. So, yeah, I love that Buddhist idea that Hector talks about as well as other Buddhists. And he's talk, he talks about it so beautifully that everyone is your teacher. Mm-hmm. And if you can go that way, instead of charity, you're going... There's a, an indigenous woman from, um, from uh, um, uh, Australia, an Aboriginal woman, I don't know her name, but I'm sure some of your listeners, or maybe you know the quote. And she says, if you're coming to help me, you're wasting your time. But if your liberation is tied up with my liberation, then let's dance together. Nice. And that's what it, yeah, right? You know, and, and, and that's the process. And, and to just get to the healing bit, you know, because I've always, I've, I've always sort of shrunk away from the healer aspect. And when people call me a healer, it just seems like, first of all, it's a fucking lot of pressure. Yeah. <laughs> but, but like, there's also, the, just, I had someone in one of our groups, I, I do a, 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 a psychedelic disintegration group. Um, I had someone say that, talk about, and we'll talk about this a little bit, like, sort of the shame that he felt at not getting the results, you know, which I saw so much of in my work with Ibogaine. For those folks who were seeking Ibogaine and they came and they saw me on YouTube or on this show or that show and they didn't have the same results, meaning that they went back and using heroin almost immediately or after weeks or months or whatever it was. And then there was this great deal of shame that somehow they let us down, that they let them, you know, and my experience with this thing is it's not formulaic. So there's the, and I think the whole psychedelic movement and even yoga movement and, 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 and that there is going to be this result by the, the, these series of things that you do. And clearly folks can't be at your level as a yogi, right? That's not going to happen for, it's certainly not going to happen for me. <laughs> in this 57-year-old, you know, beat-up body, right? You know what I'm saying? But there was also a level of shame attached to it for a lot of folks. Mm-hmm. And, what I, and, then the, and then this guy talked about the, that shame because he did MDMA to, to deal with this d- severe depression and it's not going away, so something's really wrong with him. And then he talked a little bit about the, the, this idea of healing. And I also realized that 
you know, we're always going for healing. Sometimes there's no healing. Sometimes with someone with, you know, we, we want MDMA and psilocybin to help with post-traumatic st- stress for, uh, for our vets. You know, I think maybe there's no healing from that in the way that we're thinking about uh, getting over. I mean, maybe there's comfort. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's more of understanding, maybe. But I think all these things can be explored and, right. and shared. And I, and I think that that goes across all the, all the, all the sort of healing modalities and, and cultures from Ayurvedic to shamanistic to, to allopathic. That this idea that there's something outside of you that's going to do this and this is going to be the end result and we're the ones that are going to deliver it. I okay, don't that's, see that. that's a good point right there. Um, and, you know, maybe we're talking semantics here if we, you know, pick mm-hmm. over the words that we want to use. But I, I would say certainly there aren't absolute cures for any of these things. But is it, you know, how do you feel about healing being an expression of love and potentially not taking us to a final destination or absolute resolution, but there being some sort of beauty in that process of, of being there together? I think that's it exactly. If we call, if we use the word healing, which I'm not sure if I'm going to use after next month, but I'm using it right now. (laughs) (laughs) If we use the word healing, then that's what it is. This this exchange of love, and And that's what we've gotten away from so much because of and because what tends to happen is in specializing is hierarchy, Mm -hmm. you know, and and I think it's dangerous, and there's very few people that can walk it. In a, in a really, I mean, you, you take these sort of beautiful teachings like Buddhism or, or, or Christianity or, or, and, and the hierarchy that comes out of, out of that. It's just kind of these messages of love, like, wow. Yeah. And the damage. Yeah. Because we want to heal someone. We want to save someone. We want them to be enlightened or saved or, or whatever the goal is or, you know, stop their incarnation and, you know, and, and, and yeah, it's difficult because, yeah. you know, at the same time, you, as someone who has gone around and, and served Ibogaine to many different people and seen all the different aftermath possibilities, like you do come with a level of authority, you know, a level of credibility or expertise that is valuable. And, you know, people look to you when you have experience as a guide, but that doesn't mean that you are the keeper of all that is true. And that's, that's where it gets hairy, I think. I think it gets real, and, and that's exactly it. I mean, when you're a great yoga, I mean, look, there's, a, there's, it's right, right for abuse. Uh, when you are an incredible yogi, or you have some skill set in 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 administering something or a spirit, a particular spiritual path, it doesn't really necessarily sort of correspond to what we might call goodness. <laughs> Yeah, you know, yeah. it's like it's like the guy who can shoot a three pointer all day, you know, uh, and he gets sort of elevated in our culture. I mean, that's what he does, and I think it's really hard for folks. You know, the other thing is, people are looking for mom and dad. They're looking for that comfort in the teacher. They're looking for that comfort in the healer. They're looking for that comfort in the artist or the athlete. They're looking for that way through this very difficult path, and and I and I think that. We have to be very wary of it. I, um, yeah. There's a great anarchist philosopher and one of the, probably the first ecologist in modern times, I would say. His name is Murray Bookchin, and I would suggest that everyone check him out. Um, but Murray Bookchin talks about you know, this idea in, in a lot of traditional societies, but I've never heard it sort of uh, 
sort of articulated like this is that even what we call wisdom in a lot of, in some societies, but I think it's a sort of a good way to sort of walk through the world, doesn't, it's basically just a job description. And that's it. So if you're wise about something in particular, that's your job and that's it. And we're not having this conversation right now without the producer that produced the show, without the people that, you know, mind the cultic, God bless us, for, to have this, this talk. So there's a, there's, there's a minor in, 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 the, in our conversation. There's people in the, in the factories who produce the earbuds. There's the guy who made me the coffee this morning. Well, without him, I would not be having this talk. You <laughs> yeah. know, there's, there's all these people. And, and I, I, I think when you, you're an incredible yogi or a brilliant professor or, an, or a very good ceremonialist, there is an idea. There's a tendency to, for folks to want to sort of give up power because they just want someone yeah. else to drive. I understand it. And especially if it's exotic, like if someone's from India or Africa or, you know, and it's like some white folks from North America, there's this other thing. We sort of want to like, you know, make people somehow not people by making them specialer with uh-huh. an ER, which there's no word for it, but like, yeah, but making them more human, maybe, which takes them out of human, I mean, somehow more wiser because of their tradition, you know, and so we're seeing all kinds of, uh, of misunderstandings and abuses and just very, just very, very much human, yeah. human. And stuff. in your arena, when you're talking about dealing with people who are suffering from addiction or prone to addiction, I mean, is there something to be said for that being a repeating pattern, you know, giving up your power to something outside of yourself that you believe will solve your problems? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Or it's parallel, it, right? No, no, it is. And you see it, it. Look, it happened with me in, um, um, in not in, in, for a while, not so much giving up my power. Uh, well, I, I, I sort of fell into this thing. I'm, you know, I'm really grateful to Iboga. I'm really grateful to Howard Lutzoff, who was the first in the first to discover its therapeutic potential with addiction, uh, and he became my friend and teacher. I'm grateful to the people of Gabon for the Buiti, uh, for their teachings. Um, but I sort of gave up my power to this. I sort of sort of fetishized the plant. And I gave up, I'm following the plant. You hear people talking about this, I'm following the plant path, I'm following the plant path. And, and, what, I, and, and what I saw is that I, eventually is that I became addicted to being in this space as quote unquote healer. And I did it to the detriment of all, which you can see in that film. I'm fucking nuts in that film. I'm dangerous with love. <laughs> Incidentally, it was started 15 years ago and I've hopefully grown some since then. But I was so on fire with delivering this that I lost a certain power that I became, I just wanted so many people and I just didn't give a shit. And I'm kind of grateful that the DEA stopped me um, because it, it gave me time for reflection. But like there is a danger for that. And you see people coming out of, of addiction and finding a guru and finding this or that. And yeah, there is a tendency for that. You know, I mean, one thing about 12 steps and it's not for everybody. Um, and I, and I've, I'm in 12 step fellowship for, for sort of, other other than substance at this point but i but it recognizes the tendency to sort of deify humans um and it's sort of in the 12 traditions it, it which is really sort of an anarcho document it sort of 
it, it anticipates that tendency. That, that tendency. Um, what happens? Those people deify the twelve steps <laughs> and become sort of, in a healthy way, for the most part. And I want to be very careful in saying this, but uh, it becomes a pattern. I don't want to say addicted, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it becomes a pattern and sometimes difficult to break out of. Well, this is a nice segue to talk about what you're doing at the New York Harm Reduction Educators. Tell me about, first of all, define harm reduction, because I know that that is a specific term that is used in a specific way. And, um, and then talk a little bit about how the work there is different from, say, a 12-step program and some of the other right. alternatives out there. Right on. Well, harm reduction, um, the easiest, what, what they say, which is sort of comes sort of formulaic, we, we meet people where they're at. Okay, so which is easier said than done. What it is, it, it sort of came up out of the, um, the uh, AIDS epidemic um, in the early 90s. And um, the idea is that we reduce the harm of drug use and sex work primarily. Um, so in its most obvious form, its most street level form, it's, it's needle exchange, that mean, or, or syringe, God, I said needle exchange, like I'm going back. People in harm reduction world would cringe at my vernacular. It's, it's syringe access. So in other words, you, we give, you give people clean syringes, um, which might seem obvious or it might seem radical to some people listening, you know, or it might seem obvious to other folks. So I'll just give it, I'll go back to once upon a time. Once upon a time when I was using in the early 90s in the Lower East Side of Manhattan and all my friends were dying from HIV, this new thing that was spreading out, and uh, the Democratic mayor and governor of the state, Cuomo and, um, oh God, I, I mercifully forgot his name, Koch, um, had you know put a ban on, on access to clean syringes. There was no place to buy a syringe. And uh, uh, legally, so I would go to Second Street and Avenue A, which was a very or B actually, which was a very different Second Street and Avenue B than it is today. And there would be always there was a couple spots there that guys would be standing, guys and girls would be standing on the corner selling these these uh, syringes for a buck or two. And sometimes I'd open up a sealed quote unquote sealed syringe and I'd squeeze it, a little water would come out of the top, meaning that it had been used before. And I would still use it because of my desperation. Right. Um, and putting myself at risk for hepatitis C and HIV over and over again. So one day I walked up uh, to, on that corner and I, um, I, uh, I, there are some other people that had set up a table and there are people from this organization called ACT UP. And for those of you who don't know who ACT UP is, you should be Googling that right now. They were um, a, a bunch of activists, very militant activists that were demanding, most of them identified as queer, um, demanding that the government do something, that they, that they push, they push uh, HIV medication uh, through, that they, that they pay attention. And the president at that point, having said the word yet, had said AIDS yet, that they pay attention that this was happening to you know, to queer people and and, uh, and and drug users and primarily women of color. Those the people who are most affected and, and still are. Um, and so these people were set up on the street and they were giving away syringes, clean syringes for free. And they were risking jail. And every time I talk about that, it moves me. And that was probably 20, over 20 years ago. It moves me because here was just like touching the leopard. Someone went out, risked their freedom, and touched me. 
and gave, they said, look, we know what you're doing. We're not here to judge you. If you want to stop, we'll talk to you about that. But, you know, we know you need this right now. And here's the syringe. And to me, it was this transformational moment in my life that someone cared about me at that point. And so the harm reduction movement came out of that, came out of that this sort of radical service and defiance of the law, but saying like, look, we're going to do this. And what happened was governments started to pay attention because it was clear that it was going to cost them a lot of money if these, if these, these, these users, these drug users, were going to continue to get infected with HIV and hepatitis C. And at that point, I, I don't know the exact numbers, but it was an incredibly high percentage of people injecting were going to get HIV and hepatitis C or HIV for sure. I mean, I think it was like, I don't know if it was two in 10 or some crazy number. And now it's down to, to something like 1% or less than 1% of new infections of, 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 of people who inject drugs. And that is because of this work. And it's because it became policy. You know, everyone except the last one in the country was fucking Pence in, the, in Indiana. He, that, he, as governor, he banned syringe exchange up until maybe five years ago, but even he relented. And so this has become policy around the world, these syringe exchanges. And, and, and these, these the places that give out syringes, mostly in the urban areas, have also, there's also all these other services that have been provided for, like, you know, um, you know, maybe there's a doctor that comes through, there's case management, some mental health work. Anyways, I was I was for many years the um, a, um, a a client of of a syringe um, um, exchange program, a, a harm reduction center. Um, what happened over time is that we won on the science, and then the science won over on us, meaning that it became just about reducing the risk of hepatitis C and HIV and overdose. And the little things that used to happen in the early days, like closing shop for an afternoon and just doing people's hair, which I thought was beautiful back in in the 90s, where they were just, you know, guys and girls, people who are hairstylists and so forth, would come in and anybody, you know, man or woman or however they identified, could come in and just do hair and makeup. That doesn't have a science component. So all that sort of faded away. So anyway, let me fast forward to like how I got into work. The idea in harm reduction, well, let me get into that, is that we meet people where, where, we're, where they're at. We don't go in with any judgment. We don't go in and say, you know, we don't, we're not there to say, look, you know, here's a needle, but you really need to stop taking, stop dope. We're going to give you a quote unquote tough love. Clearly that doesn't work. If it worked, there'd be no one using drugs right now. People say, well, aren't you, aren't you like, you know, just enabling folks? Yeah, I work in East Harlem. Uh, this is not a population. This is black and brown and poor people and, and some white poor people, most of them homeless, most of them been formerly incarcerated. They're not a group, a group of people that are suffering from coddling. They have faced every... Yeah, it's not the problem here that they that that, that their actions don't have a, have a some, some sort of a counterweight. As a matter of fact, what's happened is they've been so criminalized that 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 maybe their actions, good or bad, as we would see it, don't matter because they've been sort of criminalized for being. Um, anyways, the idea is that we just accept you wherever you're at. And if you're going to go get high, we're going to want to make sure that you're okay at that point. If you want to stop, we'll talk about that. We'll look at you. And we just want to look at the full person. Now, that sounds like it's a great thing to say, but to me, it is so close to a Buddhist dharma. 
Because what we're asking, what I ask of myself, and this is a spiritual practice for me, is when I go in to work is that I don't, I have to try <laughs> not to hope for an outcome. And much like counting your breath, you're going to veer off. Much like a practicing Hindu or a practicing Christian or Jew or Buddhist or whatever, Muslim or whatever, you're not going to be able to do that. You're not going to be able to teach Christ, to walk in Christ's path all the time. So in other words, I go in every day, my job is to like be there for folks, and I'll get to more specific about the work we're doing at, uh, at Nairi, New York Harm Reduction Educators. But my job is, first and foremost, is to be in acceptance. But there are many, many times where I want someone just to fucking stop with the dope. Don't go back to that destructive relationship. Please don't go on that corner and sell yourself because I love you. And I don't want to see you die. And coming from that point of, that, that's somewhere in me. And often that will lead me to say or do things that lead me off the track, that put me in judgment and tell someone what is right, something prescriptive. Sometimes there's a place for a prescriptive when somebody asks, but I never, or I try never. <laughs> I failed, I fail. And sometimes I judge. And sometimes I want things to be different, but the idea is to go back to this radical love and acceptance, radical love and acceptance. That is not to say that we don't follow the normal protocol, normal, the normal interactions that, that sort of, the, 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 the civil interactions that sort of govern our, our way of, of being in the world. I mean, if someone's rude, if someone is, you know, uh, is violent, you know, we don't tolerate that but we're not going to judge someone simply by what they put into their body. So that, that's, that's the practice. That's the spiritual practice of harm reduction. What we do, how, you know, and, and, and God bless you because you've come up and, and done work up at, at Nairi. Um, we have a, a little component called the holistic component that I don't, that I think is unique in all harm reduction, maybe in the world. Um, well, let me just say, the, the way that I got to Nairi is that I was arrested by the DEA for doing ceremony, uh, a bogus ceremony, uh, uh, which, with no sense of irony. Uh, the, apparently, the DEA didn't think it was ironic or didn't, even, didn't comment on that I was detoxing a heroin addict when I was arrested. It was, it was a sting operation. Now, for them, it's drugs or drugs. All yeah, drugs, drugs are and drugs, drugs. So anyways, I was facing a lot of time, and they had taken And this is after I went to Gabon and was initiated as a, as a, as a, uh, as a healer within the tradition of Bwiti, and I've been back several times, and it was my religion, and went through a whole court case. And, but as that case was coming up, God, or however the, the listener wants to, however that word is translated, opened up this new door for me, which was working with my... At that point, uh, he's no longer working there, but the, the, the great Brian Murphy, who does great work with people post-psychedelics post, uh, now, but they've been working in harm reduction as a therapist. We, and, and, and my colleague, uh, Juan Cortez, we began to, to just sort of organically, I got arrested, DEA took my magic powder away. I had all this ritual and all this kind of stuff, and what the hell was I going to do? Why I waited to, at that point, go to prison it looked like i was going to go to prison for this and this opportunity to come in and just sort of start to work 
at New York Harm Reduction Educators in East Harlem. And we started out, there was a meditation group that Brian was doing, and he was just sort of sitting there quietly meditating. And I brought in a rattle one day, and then I brought in some more rattles for people to sort of shake during the meditation. And then I heard someone play drums. So then someone started playing drums. And before too long, there was this, this sort of wild celebration every Thursday, which we somehow called We Are the Medicine. And this celebration has gone on for eight years, and there's been a ritual that has been just morphing uh, with no guidance. Um, um, every Thursday, we have this beautiful drum circle where ritual is performed, and new ritual comes in, and new songs are created. And, and so that's part of the sort of the, 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 the core uh, or I guess maybe the, the the anchor to the holistic program. And through time, through no design and no money, other healers and practitioners started to come. Now, Juan Cortez was there doing um, uh, auricular acupuncture. That's the five-point acupuncture on the ear. And that's been part of harm reduction. And we inherited that from the work of the Black Panthers and, and the Young Lords. And people should look into that uh, Young Lord party, uh, which was sort of the... Um, the, the sister organization of the Black Panther for Puerto Rican people in, the, in this neighborhood in East Harlem. Anyways, we were doing auricular acupuncture, but more healers started to come in. And what's happened, again, with no design and no money, was working with Rose Aaron and working with Three Jewels and working with all these other great organizations, we provide acupressure full body and auricular acupuncture. We provide sound meditations. We provide yoga, breath work, trips out to the, to the forest just to walk in the woods in New Jersey. It, um, and the list goes on and on for active drug users, homeless folks, folks who are formerly incarcerated, sex workers, people who don't have access to what we know works for us, the people listening, and we offer it for free to anyone who comes through the door. And what's happened, and that work has been without the magic powder, without the psychedelics, and I still do work with psychedelics, that work has been some of the most powerful work I've ever done. And let me say this, in sort of talking about that healer-healed relationship, that sort of hierarchical helper relationship, what happens in that we are the medicine circle is that everyone participates. Everyone gives. Everyone shakes a rattle. People dance. People, everyone talks from their heart about what they're going through. They might set up the altar. The altar changes as people bring altars and bring objects. Everyone gives. And what we get to do, what you and I get to do, my friend, is we get to be in contribution. That's what makes you're a teacher. You're a, a body worker. You have this podcast. You go around the world. You, you know what that gives you. I get to give. And there's so little... If there's precious little opportunity for people to give. We have been reduced to consumers. If we want to look at these, the so-called opioid epidemic, it's really an overdose epidemic, but the use of these drugs, the, the rising death rate of white men between 22 and 40 for the first time ever, the only rising death rate that has been recorded in decades from liver disease, from overdose, and from suicide. If we want to look at all this stuff, the, the, the mass shootings, I think, and I, and, I, and I don't want to be simplistic because I think it's as complicated as humanity, but I know that when I wasn't able to give, that that's when I felt deprived, that when I became a consumer and not a contributor, that that's when I felt cut off. And 
I see it every day in our drop-in center where you see really poor people, some people really strung out, really struggling, wanting to give. Yeah, they might take your wallet if you leave it out. That's on you. But they might share the context of their wallet with their brothers and sisters. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the thing. And that's the world yeah. that, 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 and I would say for any practitioner out there, that that's the thing to look for. How can the people that you're working with, that you're co-creating space with, how can they give and how can they be part of the process? Yes, absolutely. That that is it. And I think all of the the listeners, there are a lot of yoga teachers who listen to Dharma Talk and they can all they're all nodding their heads right now because that's what it's about when you teach yoga too. It's like what you get from giving. And it doesn't need to be a selfish or selfless thing. It's like what we talked about before, you know, the reason why you shy away from words like help and heal is because it makes it seem like there's a savior and a recipient when really everybody is both. Right on. And, 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 there's, an, and there's a way in for everybody. Yep. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about, I know you've got another project that, you're, that you've been doing recently, the psychedelic disintegration sessions. What's that all about? You talked about plant teachers earlier. What's going on with the psychedelic disintegrations? Well, um, so I still work with psychedelic medicine outside of the country. I, I, I do work with MDMA and psilocybin and sound. And, um, and you know, we're seeing this, this sort of resurgence um, of, of psychedelic medicine and a greater acceptance. Um, and uh, my colleague, Brian Murphy, who has a wonderful website after the medicine, and he does, he's been, he's not only done work in harm reduction, but he's been sort of an OG in the, uh, in the psychedelic therapy. He's a, he's a therapist, psychotherapist. Um, he was encouraging, he said, let's do a group, you know, let's do a group and the psychedelic integration group. And there's a lot of talk about integration. And um, I said, the only way I'm going to do it is to be called disintegration partly because I'm just a contrarian fuck, but also <laughs> yeah. the, the idea of sort of integrating. And, and, and I, 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 we use the uh, Christian, the beautiful Christian Merte, uh, uh, we'll probably not say it exactly, but um, I, I think it's something like um, uh, 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 I'm going to fuck it up here. Hold on sort of like being health, being, being able to participate in a sick society is no sign of health. I see. Yeah. And so the idea that much like harm reduction, we were just going out there to say, look, we're going to reduce HIV AIDS. And then it just became all about that instead of giving people like a, a, a makeover, like giving yeah, homeless people Once it a became like, once yeah. it worked into the system and into the policies, it kind of lost the heart of it. It loses the heart. It loses the heart of it. And like, if you look at the way the psychedelic movement with really good organizations, I think for the most part are really appeal appealing. They say, look, we're, we're end PTSD, which I think is just skewed and nonsense. If you do MDMA and, you know, we'll just get you back in. It's sort of the way that cognitive therapy was pushed after the second world war. You have all these damaged guys, you know, we can just go sit around and like, be like this guy, crazy guy, Jung, and like, you know, talk about archetypes and spirit and all this stuff, or we can just give them 12 cognitive therapy sessions and boom, they're back at work. And that's what they're trying to kind of say is like, we can just get sort of, it will interrupt the process with a medicine. Um, and going back to this sort of consumer contributor type of thing, the idea of uh, the, the, the way it's been reduced in the psychedelic movement uh, and the legit, trying to legitimize stuff um, uh, is that uh, you can take something to, to, to heal you from uh, the effects of materialism. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. It's fucking batshit nuts. So, and, and you, and you, and, 
there's also uh, the reason why I was starting. I became interested is there's no space to talk about that really, even in the traditional psychedelic, the psychedelic spaces. They're all about integrating this back in. I don't know how you integrate an ayahuasca ceremony back into like I don't know working at the discount shoe warehouse. I mean, what does that have to, I mean, other than maybe the way you, you, you work with people, maybe there's things that are not integratable into the existing paradigm. Maybe there's a way that we can disintegrate boundaries, disintegrate stuff that is no longer useful to us, and also have a space to talk about when psychedelics don't work. Like that guy I was talking about when they when they went for the Holy Grail and it didn't work. But what we hear people talking about in the disintegration group is it's not necessarily the compounds because I'm not interested in compounds. They're talking about the process to what they had to do for themselves. Real rationalists having to go like to some some crazy self-proclaimed shaman in 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 Brooklyn and just the process of going through that. Right, all the most of the spiritual. Classics are about journeys. They're not about being at the space. Bhagavad is about a journey. The Bible is about a journey. The Quran is about a journey. The, the, the Buddha was on a journey until he found that tree. And then he went on. He went walking, right? So, like, what is the journey there? And, and, and what do we find with each other? So, the disintegration is a place to come in. We, we do it every Tuesday night. Um, uh, in Chelsea, um, you can go to my website and check it out. It's a place to discuss that. Also a place to discuss for folks who didn't find a great trip. There's also this idea in the psychedelic world, which they're mimicking the outer world where there's no such thing as a bad trip. I'll have to tell you that there absolutely is. And we can gaslight people about their experiences within psychedelics. Um, and so it's a, play, it's a really smart conversation. It's a heart-opening conversation. And I, we want to sort of expand on, on, on that on that ethos of disintegrating the things that are no longer useful us, for us and not having to be part of a, of a narrative of like the plant teacher or the, the holy shaman or, or you know, um, just a really smart, heartfelt conversation we've been having. I dig it. Sounds good. Yeah, and right. for, for people in the area who might want to stop through and participate in that conversation, how, how do they do that? Um, you can go to my website, DimitriMajanis.com, and you can book a space. Um, there's also, it's on, oh God, do I have the address here somewhere? It's on 23rd Street uh, every Tuesday at 7 o'clock. Um, I'm trying to find the address and I can't. Um, but it's on my website, 7 o'clock uh, uh, Tuesdays on 23rd Street in Chelsea. It's $30. Um, I'll be doing some more talks with, you know, uh, other psychedelic groups um, and exploring this, this opening. I, I think there's a lot of opportunity, but I think what we're doing is we're trying to, I don't think we can, well, I'll just say this. Uh, Leonard Cohen said they sentenced me to 20 years of boredom for trying to change the system from within. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right, Dimitri, I think we, we better start wrapping this up, but we always yeah. finish these interviews with, uh, with a round of rapid fire questions. Oh, we, didn't, okay. we didn't talk too much about yoga, although there were a lot of ideas in here that fit right in line with the, the spirit of yoga. But um, do you practice yoga? I have had a practice and I'm, I, I'm going to start again, I swear. But when I have had it, it's been when I've been in a regular practice, it's been amazing. It's okay. been really helpful for me. Yeah. Then you've got, you've got enough background to be able to answer this rapid fire round of questions then. I don't think so, but go ahead. 
<laughs> All right, here we go. This is the prana round. Answer okay. in minimum one word, maximum one sentence. Okay. okay. In one word, why do you practice yoga? Peace. What is your favorite yoga pose and why? Or I like to sleep. So, so yoga nidra, savasana. Yeah, savasana. <laughs> okay, I was a junkie for twenty years. Okay, savasana. <laughs> All right. What is the single best cue or piece of advice that you've ever received from a teacher? And this one does not need to be a yoga teacher. Well, listen to your body. Recommend one book, modern or ancient, for our listeners. Oh. I'm drawing a blank, but give me a second. Um, nothing's jumping out right now because there's so many books. You know what? I'd read, I'd read the book of your tradition. Okay. You're, you're the one you were born into. The one you were born into. Get in touch with your ancestry. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is yoga for everyone? In my understanding, yes. I mean, we have people doing yoga in chairs at, at Nairi who sometimes can barely stand up or walk. So, yes. Awesome. Okay, last question. Dimitri, how can our audience get in touch with you and how can we support you in your dharma? Thank you. Um, you can get in touch with me at um, dimitrimajanis.com. Um, I will talk to anyone for 15 minutes <laughs> for free. So if you want to talk to me, then we can, that can be arranged. Um, and just write to me. Um, you can give money to Nairi. The thing is, is it probably won't go directly to the, to the holistic. So if you're interested in donating, contributing, either as a volunteer, if you have a skill set that you want to bring up to the folks of East Harlem or the South Bronx, please do so. Or if you want to give a donation, check with me at my website, dimitrinas.com, so I make sure that it gets to our holistic component um, and not to like buying a new file cabinet, <laughs> which is important, <laughs> but let them get that somewhere else. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for your transparency on that. And, and thank you for your transparency with your personal story today. It's been really cool to hear from you and have this, have this conversation. We haven't gone, you know, this, this far in, in your background in person. So it's really been my privilege and I'm happy to share it with others. Thank you so much, brother. It's been a, a privilege and, you know, it's all due to, to my, to my teachers, uh, young, old, four-legged, two-legged, winged, and uh, leafed. <laughs> Amazing. I love it. All right, Dimitri. Well, I'll see you soon at the Harm Reduction Center, and hopefully you'll be meeting some new faces from the Dharmic Talk community, too. Yes. God bless. Thanks, brother. Dharma Talkers, I hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. And if you did, please share it. Take a screenshot, share it on Instagram, and tag me, at Henry Wins. I love hearing from you about the conversations that make an impact for you. We have the ability to shape the world through our thoughts, words, and conversation. So let's influence the collective consciousness together. All my gratitude to Rory Wagstaff of Ease of Mind Productions for keeping our audio crisp and operations smooth, and to Patrick Kiebzak of Momentology Music and Art for supplying the powerful soundtrack to these conversations. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review, and tune in to new episodes of Dharma Talk every Thursday. 
I'll speak to you next week. And until then, keep living your dharma.